You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings chapter 19, what we like to do here at Whitefields, we love to study through books of the Bible. And for the last bit here, we've been studying through the books of First and Second Kings. It's been a long study. We're coming up to the end of it. And I'm really excited about following this. We already know what our next two, maybe even three series are going to be. Starting with Easter, we're going to be doing a series called The Risen Life, in which we're going to be doing what traditionally has been done by Christians in the six weeks following Easter. It's something that has sometimes been called Easter Tide, and it is following the six weeks of Easter, we are going to be looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in the New Testament and what they teach us about what it means for us to live the risen life, having been raised together with Christ. So let's bow our heads and pray as we open up God's word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're a God who wants to speak to us. And Lord, we want to be people who have open ears and open hearts to what you have to say to us. Lord, would you help us to be receptive to your word? Lord, would you help us to put it into practice in our lives? And we pray, Lord, that you would transform us today by your spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As he stood there that day, he was probably shaking. He held in his hands a letter the kind of letter that no one ever wants to receive. I don't know if you've received those kinds of letters yourself, the kind of letter or text message or email that you read it, and, and it's so disturbing, so perhaps even devastating or, or distressing that you can't even speak after you read it. Maybe you've been in that kind of place before. You've gotten that message that has bad news, or it has that message that you, you never wanted to hear, but there it is written down, and you're holding it in your hands. I've forgotten those kinds of messages before. Well, this man, he was holding that kind of letter in his hands, and he needed to make a decision. But understand, it was not at all an easy decision to make. Honestly, he had probably never been more scared and more worried in his entire life up until this point. This letter was full of threats. This letter contained ultimatums. And it also contained, oddly enough, some offers that were pretty tempting. They were tempting offers because what this letter essentially said was this, either give us everything you have and we'll let you live, or we will come and take everything you have and we will do things to you and do things to the people that you love that will be so bad and so terrible that you will wish that you had never been born. The man holding this letter was named Hezekiah. He was the king of Judah. And the letter that he held was from a man named Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Now, Hezekiah knew that the threats contained in this letter, they were not empty threats. These were very legitimate threats. And here's why. Because in that very moment, as he stood in his room holding this letter in his hands, the Assyrian army stood out at the gates of the city of Jerusalem, waiting for the word from their commander to attack. They were ready. The Assyrians had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel just five to ten years before this. They definitely had it in them. They had a history of conquering all the kingdoms that they possibly could. You see, the Assyrians had actually already conquered 
all of Judah except for Jerusalem. We read this in chapter 18, verse 13. The Assyrians had already conquered every other fortified city in Judah except for Jerusalem. This was the last stand, the last holdout for Judah. If Jerusalem falls, that's it. Game over. The Assyrian Empire was the most powerful nation in the world at that time. They had the largest, most advanced military in the world. Only a few years before this, as I said, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians, and they had carried away its residents into exile in Assyria. The kingdom of Judah was even smaller than the kingdom of Israel. They had an even smaller military. No way did they even stand a chance. If the northern kingdom of Israel didn't stand a chance against Assyria, the kingdom of Judah didn't stand a chance by any means. So what should Hezekiah do? What should he do? Should he surrender or should he fight? Let me ask you, what would you do in a situation like this? Would you fight or would you surrender? What, what, would, what do you do? Let me put it that way. What do you do in your own life in the situations that you face when you face great challenges or big dilemmas or difficult situations? How do you handle those situations? How do you respond when you get bad news or when you, you face major disappointments in your life? What about when you face serious temptations to give up or to give in to something that you know is not good, but you're, you're not sure if you have the strength to resist it? In our study today, we're going to see how Hezekiah responded and why it matters for us in how we respond to the difficulties and challenges that we face in our lives. The title of today's message is Laying It All Out Before the Lord. Laying It All Out Before the Lord. And here's what we're going to learn as we study 2 Kings chapter 19. Here's our one-sentence summary, our takeaway truth. This is also our outline for studying the passage, so I encourage you, write it down in your notes. Take a photo of it, whatever you got to do to memorize it and remind yourself of it. We're going to break it down as we study this passage, but here's the one-sentence summary. In the face of our challenges, rather than succumbing to fear and temptation, we can cast our cares upon the God who cares and has the power to save. We're going to repeat that several times as we go, and we'll keep it on the screen here for you for a minute so you can write it down. But let's break that down as we study this passage. So first of all, in the face of our challenges, all of us face challenges in this life. It's part of life in this broken, fallen world that we live in. Jesus warned us that this would be the case in one of the less popular promises of the Bible, right? We have these Bible promises book. Well, here's one of them. This one's not as popular. Here's, it, here's what it is. In this world, you will have tribulation. It's not a maybe. It's not a, I don't know, we'll see if it happens. No, it's a promise. This will happen. You will have trials and tribulations in your life, period. In fact, the Apostle Peter, in his letter to the Christians at the, in the Roman Empire at that time, he told them this in, in 1 Peter chapter 4. He said, don't be surprised when challenges and difficulties come into your life as if something strange or unusual is happening. For Christians, for followers of Jesus to experience trials and difficulties in their lives is not strange. It's not unusual. It's exactly what you should expect, in other words. You know, some people would assume that if you are doing everything right, let's say it this way, that you're ticking all the boxes, so to say, that God wants you to, to tick and wants you to be doing, if you're doing all the stuff that God wants you to do, then some people believe that, that God will somehow make you immune 
from bad things happening to you. He will, he will not allow bad things to happen to you. But friends, that is not how it works. And we have a perfect example of that here with Hezekiah. And here's why. Because in the previous chapter, chapter 18, which we studied last week, we saw how Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord more, it says in the text, than any king who came before him or any king who ever lived after him. For example, Hezekiah cleansed Judah of all the pagan elements that had been brought into the country over the years. He reopened the temple which his father had closed during his time as king. He also took a bold stand for the Lord, and he was one of the most godly kings who ever reigned in either Israel or Judah. And because Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, it, we read there that God was pleased with him, and it says that God was with him. But just wait a second. If God was so pleased with Hezekiah, then why is God allowing this to happen to him? If God is so pleased with Hezekiah, if he's doing all the right things, he's doing everything right, everything that God wants him to do, and yet here he is, and his worst nightmare, the one thing that he says, as long as that doesn't happen to me, now that thing is happening to him. His worst nightmare, he's facing imminent destruction from the world's greatest army, and there's no way out. There's no way to avoid it. In other words, how does that work when you're doing everything that God wants you to do and your worst nightmare comes to fruition? How can that be? If Hezekiah is doing what God wants him to do, then why would God allow this to happen to him? How is that even fair? Maybe you've wondered that at times in your own life, personally. If God really loves me, and if God is really powerful and he can do anything, then couldn't he prevent this thing from happening to me? And if he didn't prevent it, then why didn't he? Does he really love me? Is this even fair? I'm doing all the right stuff, God. Why? How could you allow this to happen to me? But remember this. Jesus' promise to us was not that if you follow him, you will have a problem-free and easy life. Jesus himself did not have that kind of life, guys. He didn't have a problem-free or easy life. Neither did any of the apostles. And by the way, that was never his promise to us anyway, was it? Jesus' promise to us was this. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. The good news for those who follow Jesus is that because of what he did in his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can have hope that goes beyond this world, beyond this life and its trials. In him, we have the hope of eternal life in a place where there will be no more sorrows, no more loss, but instead, true joy and peace forever. And we have the promise, furthermore, of his presence and his power being with us no matter what we face in our lives. So because we have this hope, the hope of eternal life, the hope of his presence and his power in our lives, then how should we respond to the challenges and difficulties that we face? Well, that brings us to the second part of our statement, our sentence, and that's this. In the face of our challenges, rather than succumbing to fear and temptation, Let's stop there. The Assyrians were using fear and intimidation to get the people of Judah to try and co convince them to surrender. But that wasn't the only thing they were using. They used another tactic. Their other tactic they used was temptation. Now, this is really interesting. They tried to tempt the people of Judah into surrendering on their own. 
And notice what they do. If you read in chapters 18 and 19, here's what you'll see. The, the Assyrians come, they surround Jerusalem, and they have this man named the Rab Shekha. That is a title of their military commander. And he goes and he speaks to the people of Jerusalem so they can hear him. And as he does this, he makes offers to them and promises. He says, if you will surrender, here's what we will do for you. Here's what we will give you. We'll give you these things. For example, he says at one point, if you give us all of your money, then we will leave you alone. Another time he comes back and he says, if you will surrender to us, we will give you land in Assyria and we will even give you horses, right? We'll take you to Assyria and you'll love it there. You'll have a great life. You're going to live like kings. You're really going to enjoy it, right? And now because the people of Judah, they knew very well, they understood that they were weak, especially compared to the Assyrians, these offers were truly tempting to them, very much so. I mean, think about it. They figure, well, either way, we're going to lose everything we have, right? Well, the one way, we lose it the hard way. The other way, we lose it the easy way. And maybe we get something in the, in the trade. So they were truly tempted to surrender and give in. In fact, King Hezekiah himself used that same logic in his initial dealings with Assyria when they attacked. If you look at chapter 18, verses 14 and 15, here's what you'll see. When the Assyrians first came and attacked Judah, Hezekiah responded by trying to appease them because he was so afraid of them that he said, okay, I'll see if I can pay them off. I'll appease them. We'll give them all of our money. So he cleared out his own personal money, all of the money of the country. And it says that he even scraped the doorposts of the temple to try and get off whatever gold and silver he could get. Everything they had, they gave it to the Assyrians and said, okay, take our money and leave us alone. And the Assyrians said, okay, sure thing. You got it. Except as it turns out, guys, I don't know if you're surprised by this, but the king of Assyria was not very good at keeping his promises. He said, okay, I'll leave you alone. But then he didn't. He didn't keep his promise. He came right back and attacked them again, even after Hezekiah pays him off. In fact, here's what I'll tell you. We can be sure that all of the promises of the Assyrians that they made to the people of Jerusalem, they were absolutely empty promises. They had absolutely no intention of actually doing the things that they promised to do. For example, in chapter 18, verse 31, the Assyrian commander, he comes and he promises the people of Jerusalem, if you surrender to us, we will give you land in Assyria. You'll drink wine. You'll eat You'll eat honey. Uh, it will be amazing. You'll live like kings. And then in verse 23, he promises, if you surrender to us, we'll give you 2,000 horses. Who doesn't love horses, right? Of course they want that. But these were completely empty promises. That was the first tactic of the enemy here, was empty promises. Now, how do we know that these were empty promises? Well, we know it partly because of historical records. Some of these records come from the Assyrians themselves. They took very detailed records, some of which, by the way, are found in the British Museum in London. You can go and see them yourself. But there were also other nations at this time who were keeping records. For example, the Egyptians who faced off against the Assyrians. And what we know from all these historical records, as well as depictions, drawings, paintings, is that the Assyrians, uh, they would often do this, where they would try to get a nation to surrender. But once that nation surrendered, they did not 
make them live like kings in Assyria. No, when a nation surrendered to Assyria, here's what they would do. They would take the population of the, of the city or of the country. They would bind them and tie them up, and they would take big hooks, like, like think big fish hooks, and they would put these hooks through their noses and then through their cheeks, right? In their face, they would put these hooks. And then they would lance all these together with a rope, and they would chain the people together, and they would lead them by a rope from wherever they lived to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, where they would be sold on the street as slaves. Listen, if, if the people of Judah, if they surrender to Assyria, these promises of horses, the promises of land and a good life, these are all lies. They're empty lies. They're not true. The only thing that awaits them if they surrender, if they give in to this enemy, is bondage and captivity and hooks through their noses and slavery. Another tactic that the Assyrians used, if you read in chapter 18 and 19, is that they, they tried to sow seeds of doubt in the people's minds about God's love and about God's power. Over and over in these two excuse me, in these two chapters, the Assyrians tell the people of Jerusalem, don't think that your God will save you. Your God cannot save you against us. We are too powerful. Not even your God can save us. I mean, look, all of the other nations we conquered, they had gods too, and none of their gods saved them. Why do you think that your God would save you? In fact, the, the Assyrian commander says at one point, your God has actually abandoned you. Now, listen, none of that was actually true. It wasn't true that God couldn't save them, and it wasn't true that God had abandoned them. But the Assyrians were using these tactics to get the people of Israel to give in, to surrender, to give up. Now, as we read this, you can't help but be reminded, can you, of the enemy of our souls, Satan, the devil. These are the same tactics that he uses to get us to succumb to fear and temptation in our lives as well. Jesus told us this about the devil. He said he is a thief, and he comes only to steal kill and destroy. In another passage in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that the devil is a murderer and he is a liar. He is the father of lies. When he lies, he is speaking his native language. That's what he does. He lies. When the Assyrians did, uh, what the Assyrians did to the people of Jerusalem is the same thing that the enemy of our souls does to us. He will tempt you with false promises, first of all. If you do this, even though it's wrong, even though you know it's sinful, you will be happy. You will be happy. You will be satisfied. It will be worth it. But when you actually give in, when you actually surrender to that temptation, rather than getting what was promised, you know what you get? You get a hook through your nose, right? You get bondage. You get slavery. Satan, you know what else he does? He also sows seeds of doubt in our minds about God's goodness and God's love. You know, the word Satan, I hope you know this, right? Satan isn't like his name. Like when he signs up for a credit card, he doesn't write like Mr. Satan, right? Satan is a, is a descriptor of who he is and what he does. So is the word devil, right? So Satan is a Hebrew word, which means adversary. Devil is, comes from a Greek word, which means slanderer. So these words are not his name. They, they're describing who he is and what he does. He is a slanderer. How does he slander? He slanders God. Well, what does that mean? He tries to get you to believe things about God which are not true. Think back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent was trying to tempt Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. What did he say to her? First of all, he accused God 
of not really having her best interest in mind, of not wanting the best for her. He told her, there's something good here, and God is withholding it from you because he's mean and capricious and petty. And that's why he doesn't want you to have a good time. That's why he's withholding things from you that would be great, that you would love, that would just be awesome for you. That wasn't true. The other thing that he told her was he made a false promise to Eve, didn't he? He told Eve, if you eat this, you will not actually die. Now, that wasn't true either. You see, neither of these things that the enemy, that the serpent said to Eve were true. And the same is true in our lives. When you face challenges and difficulties in your life, there may be a temptation to believe the false promises of the enemy to take the sinful route because it seems easier or more pleasurable than doing what God has called you to do. So the question is, when you are facing challenges and difficulties in your life, how will you respond? Will you give in to fear? Will you give in to temptation? Well, I'm here to tell you today that there's good news. You don't have to respond in those ways. You don't have to give in. There is another way to respond. And we see this as we continue on in this sentence. In the face of your challenges, rather than succumbing to fear and temptation, you can cast your cares upon the God who cares. In chapter 19, verse 1, it says that as soon as Hezekiah heard the news that Jerusalem was surrounded and that the Assyrians were telling the people of, uh, the Assyrians were telling the people of Jerusalem that God could not and would not save them and that God had abandoned them, it says that Hezekiah heard this and he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and he went to the house of the Lord. So tearing your clothes, covering yourself in sackcloth, these were common practices in the ancient world for people who were in distress or grief or mourning. And so where does Hezekiah go in his distress, in his moment of grief and anxiety? He goes to the house of the Lord. Now that's important. When you are facing challenges in your life and trials and difficulties, you can respond by turning away from God, but you can also respond by turning to God. Right? You can respond by walking away from God in that moment, or you can respond by running to God in that moment. You know, the enemy would love for you to be the kind of person who, the moment it gets tough or difficult in your life, you throw up your hands and you walk away from God. But let me just remind you of this. Doing so, it doesn't make any sense. This is what always comes to my mind when people are like, I'm having a hard time and I'm finished with God. It's like, do you think that if you turn away from God that that will solve your problems? Will it make your problems go away? Of course it won't. In fact, all that it will take away from you is your hope, the source of your strength. It will take away from you the source of fellowship in the midst of that difficulty, the strength to carry you through it and the hope to get you through it. Rather than turning away from God in the face of this challenge, Hezekiah runs towards God. He goes to the house of God, and it says in verse 2 that he spoke to the priests there in the temple, and he asked them to send word to the prophet Isaiah. So Hezekiah ran to the house of the Lord, and he is seeking to hear a word from the Lord. He wants to know what God has to say about the situation that he's in. So the prophet Isaiah, this is the same prophet who wrote the book of Isaiah. He was there on the scene during the time of Hezekiah. It says that he gave Hezekiah a word from the Lord, a prophecy. It's found in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 19. And here's what Isaiah's prophecy said. I'll just summarize it for you. First of all, Isaiah said, 
Hezekiah, you do not need to worry about the words of the king of Assyria because God has heard them and God is going to take care of the situation. God is going to deal with this situation. So you don't need to worry about it. Furthermore, God said through this prophecy that he would cause the king of Assyria to go back, to leave Jerusalem and go back home to Assyria. And there in Assyria, when he got back home, he would die by the edge of a sword. Well, Hezekiah didn't know how exactly God was going to deal with the situation there in front of him in Jerusalem. All he knew was that God was going to do something. And we read in verse 14 that Hezekiah took this letter, this letter from the king of Assyria demanding his surrender, this letter that was causing him distress and anguish. And it says that he laid this letter out before the Lord. He, you know, he laid it out on a table or on the floor. He laid this letter out before the Lord. And verse 15, he prayed. I want to read this prayer to you. It's one of the great prayers of the Bible. Here's what it says. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear and hear, O Lord. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, they were the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone." This is a great prayer, one of the great prayers of the Bible. King Hezekiah, rather than succumbing to fear and temptation, he casts his cares upon the Lord. He lays it all out before God, both literally and figuratively. The Apostle Peter encourages us to do the same thing. Here's what he says. Cast your cares, cast your anxieties upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Think about it, like a hot potato, like a live hand grenade, right? Somebody pulled the pin and put it in your hands. You're holding on to that thing. What are you going to do? You're going to get rid of it, right? You're going to cast it off. You're going to get it to somebody else. That's the idea here. Cast it away, but don't just cast it away. Cast it upon the Lord. He says, cast it upon me. I invite you to do that. I care about you. I want to know what's going on in your heart, in your life, and I want to help you through this. Here's what we're told in Philippians chapter 4. Paul the Apostle tells us this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, if you do that, in other words, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, what is prayer? Prayer is not just a, a religious ritual. It is not just one more thing that you need to add to your long checklist of things that you need to do. One more obligation. No, you know what prayer is? It's a privilege. It's an invitation from God to you to speak to him. And he cares. He said, speak to me about the things going on in your life. I care for you and I love you. And I want you to cast your cares and anxiety upon me. Don't hold on to them yourself. Don't carry them yourself. Cast them upon me. But here's the thing. Not only does he care, but there's more to it than that. He doesn't only care, but he is also a God who can actually do something about the things that you face. And that brings us to the final part of our sentence, and that's this. In the face of our challenges, 
Rather than succumbing to fear and temptation, we can cast our cares upon the God who cares and has the power to save. He has the power to save. It says in verse 20 that Isaiah the prophet, after Hezekiah prayed, Isaiah comes back to him and he says, thus says the Lord, I have heard your prayer. Another translation, the New King James translation, it puts that verse in this way. It says, because you prayed, Isaiah tells him, because you prayed, God is going to save Jerusalem. Now think about that. Because he prayed, God is going to save Jerusalem. That's interesting, isn't it? Because if you're anything like me, right, there are times when you pray and you may feel that your prayers are not making a difference or that they aren't being answered, right? You pray and you're not sure that anything changes or anything happens. Maybe you even wonder sometimes, does it even matter if I pray? I mean, God already knows everything. It's not like I'm telling him something he doesn't know. And isn't God able? Doesn't he have the ability and the power to do and accomplish whatever he wants without me. So, so maybe I should not even bother. Like, why bother praying if it doesn't even really make a difference? Now yet, I want to show you what it says in these verses. Think, think about this and look at it. It says that because Hezekiah prayed, God saved Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Because he prayed. The implication is this. If Hezekiah had not prayed, God would not have saved Jerusalem on this day. So think about it. The fate of this city stood or fell based on Hezekiah's prayer. In other words, Hezekiah's prayer, it wasn't just a devotional exercise that helped him personally. No, this was something that made a real difference in the lives of many people. We're told in James chapter 2 that there are times when we do not have from God because we have not asked in prayer. One writer put it this way. He said this, We should ask ourselves, how many blessings, how many victories lie unclaimed in heaven until the Lord will say, because you have prayed to me. How many blessings? How many victories? In the face of your challenges and your difficulties and trials, remember this. Worrying does not fix your problems. It doesn't make your problems go away, right? None of you, by worrying, can add a single minute to your lives. You can't, you can't add hair to your head. I wish you could. I would, I would take up worrying as my next hobby, right? It doesn't, but it doesn't work that way. Worrying doesn't accomplish anything. But there's a God in heaven who cares for you, and he has the power to actually do something about the things that you are up against, even something as big and, and seemingly foregone as the Assyrian attack on Jerusalem. We read at the end there of chapter 19 that God did not allow even a single Assyrian arrow to be shot into Jerusalem. And we read in verse 35 that the angel of the Lord came in the middle of the night and struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers so that when the people woke up, all the soldiers lay dead. That's incredible. And here's the thing. I've told you, there are all these historical records of the Assyrians. Well, there's an interesting one that the Assyrians write about where they say, in one time they were camped out for battle, and in the middle of the night, their, their camp was infested with rats. And these rats destroyed a lot of their equipment, like their arrows and their bows. But also, the rats were biting the people, and the people got sick, and many of them died. Now listen, we don't know if that 
is the same description of what is happening here in verse 35. It could be that the angel of the Lord just caused all these people to die in their sleep in the middle of the night. We don't know, but it is interesting that they have something similar in their own records. So the angel of the Lord came, and all these soldiers die. The people of Judah, they didn't stand a chance against the Assyrians, but in the end, the people of Judah didn't even end up fighting the Assyrians at all. God fought this battle for them, and God gave the victory. The enemy was far too strong and far too powerful for Judah, but not for the Lord. God told the Assyrian king Sennacherib, check out what it says in verse 28. God says uh, through the prophet Isaiah, Sennacherib, I will put my hooks in your nose and turn you back the way you came. How gangster is that, right? God's like, you guys, you've been putting hooks in people's faces. I'm going to put my hook in your face and lead you back to Assyria where you came from. You get out of here and you leave my people alone. And we're told in verse 36 that all after this sudden death, this mysterious death of these 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, Sennacherib packed up and he went back to Nineveh, just as God had said he would. And in the last verse of the chapter, verse 37, it tells us that there at home in Assyria, he was killed by the edge of the sword, just as the prophecy said he would. In fact, it tells us that he was killed by his own sons as he worshiped in one of the pagan temples. Just one last interesting note on this man, Sennacherib, and that is this, that I mentioned in the British Museum, there is a document which the British brought back from modern-day Iraq, and it is called The Annals of Sennacherib. You can go see it. I, I really think that's one of the great museums of the world, the British Museum in London. Go see it for yourself. They have a whole bunch of Assyrian stuff, but they have this document called The Annals of Sennacherib, which is kind of his uh, autobiography, if you will. And in it, Sennacherib writes about all the amazing things he did and what he accomplished, who he conquered, and all of these things. But it's really interesting when he talks about Jerusalem, because he says, I conquered this city, I conquered that city, I conquered this country. I conquered these people, but not Jerusalem. It actually lists Jerusalem. It says, I got money from them, but I did not conquer them, which is exactly what it says here in the Bible as well. Listen, in the face of your challenges, rather than succumbing to fear and temptation, you can cast your cares upon the God who cares and who has the power to save. I just want to ask you this. What is it in your life right now that you need to lay it out before the Lord, that you need to lay out before God and pray about? What is it in your life right now that is causing you anxiety and worry? The Lord is inviting you to cast it upon him. He can actually do something about it. And maybe he is waiting for you to bring it to him in prayer before he will do something about it. One of the reasons why the Lord allows challenges and difficulties in your life, he doesn't allow them just in spite of the fact that he loves you. In many cases, he allows them because he loves you. That is why he does it. And here's, here's part of that. Think about this. Your faith cannot grow unless it is tested. Your faith cannot grow unless it is tested. Faith can't grow unless you use it. And therefore, faith can't grow unless it is tested. That's why Paul the Apostle, he tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says this, the, these light and momentary afflictions that we face here on earth, the hardships of this life, they are accomplishing something. They're not in vain. They are actually accomplishing something. And here's what they're accomplishing. They are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The hope of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it is not the promise of an easy life here on earth. It is something better than that. 
The hope of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is your advocate. You know what an advocate is, right? An advocate is someone who acts on your behalf and on your best interest. An advocate is someone who stands up for you and fights for you. That is what Jesus has done for us, and he continues to do for us. On the cross, in the most ultimate way, Jesus took your place and acted on your behalf. He, the only sinless one, was nailed to the cross to take the judgment for your sins. And through his life, death, and resurrection, he defeated the greatest enemies of sin and death so that you could be saved. But that's not all. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 7. It says this, that Jesus now forever lives to make intercession for us. He forever lives to make intercession for us. What that means is that he is not finished advocating for you. He is still advocating for you, fighting for you, acting on your behalf. But notice what else it says there in, verse, uh, in chapter 7 of Hebrews 25 there. It says this, this promise, who does it apply to? It applies to all those who draw near to God through him. What does it mean to draw near to God through Jesus? It means to trust in him for your salvation and to follow him with your life. Trusting in him for your salvation and following him with your life. May that be true of all of us today. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.